1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to be focusing this morning on verses 8 through 17. This is God's holy and errant word. Please give it your full attention. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God which, with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. From almost the time that we are born, we come under an increasing amount of rules in this life. For the first year of life, as we're born into this world as infants, we don't really have rules that guide us. We actually kind of make the rules. We decide when we sleep and when we eat, and we kind of run the household, as those of you who have infants in your household know. But then as we learn to use our hands and learn to roll over and learn to crawl and then learn to walk, all of a sudden, these big people start imposing rules on us in order to keep us safe and to keep the house safe. And then as we become toddlers, we have to learn more complicated rules about how to respect the property of other children and, and other rules to keep us bigger rules to keep us safe. And then we start going to school and the rules that are forced upon us increase exponentially year by year as we mature. And we hit 16 and we get the license and we're able to drive and all of a sudden there's all these other rules that get added on top of our lives. And by the time we're adults, the rules that we have to follow in this life are innumerable. And we don't even know half the laws that we're under and responsible to. For instance, when you fill out your personal income taxes, do you realize, I looked it up, the tax code of the United States of America has 73,954 pages of rules for personal taxes. That's what it's like to live under rules in this culture. And what makes this all the more onerous is that we are born into this world 
as rule breakers. That's our nature. That's our desire. That's our bent. For instance, try telling a two-year-old not to stick that fork into the electric outlet in the wall. When you tell him not to, I guarantee you, it greatly increases his desire to do just that. We are anarchists at heart. But most of us begrudgingly submit to laws and rules in order to keep society intact. Because we realize that without rules, our society would turn into chaos and destruction. We need rules. And so we acknowledge them and we look at them primarily as a necessary evil in life. Well, here in 1 Timothy 1, the Apostle Paul writes about the law of God, which is his way of summarizing all of the rules, the, the, primarily here referring to the moral law that's contained in the Old Testament. And you notice what he says about it. The very first verse we read this morning, now we know that the law is good if, and it's a huge if, if we use it lawfully. The law of God is good if we use it lawfully. This is an important passage about the law and about the gospel. It's about both. And the church, ever since the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, ever since then, the church has struggled to understand the relationship between the law of God and the gospel of God. They are not in conflict. The one doesn't abolish the other, but they work together to reunite us with the God against whom we've sinned. Elsewhere, particularly in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, Paul writes extensively about our tendency to use the law of God unlawfully. And he strongly condemns our tendency to use the law of God as a means to salvation as a means to being made right with God and having a relationship with God. And he condemns that tendency in our hearts very strongly. And he says at one point in Romans 6 that we are not under law, but under grace. But in order to understand the book of Romans, you need to understand that what he's saying there is you are not to use the law unlawfully. We are not under law as a means of salvation. We are under grace as a means of salvation. But that statement has been misunderstood by many Christians through the ages and has led them to disregard the Old Testament law and even to see it in a negative way, to disparage it. But the Apostle Paul would never contradict the rest of Scripture. He certainly would never contradict the book of Psalms. Let me read to you from Psalm 19 and give you the psalmist's perspective on God's law. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous Altogether, as we read just earlier in our service, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. 
Think about that statement. How I love God's law, he says. It is my meditation all the day. Paul would strongly agree with that. Paul loved the law of God. He addresses this issue of the relationship between the law and the gospel in writing this letter to his protege, Timothy, because Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus where false teachers have come in. Just as Paul had warned in Acts chapter 20, after he left, false teachers came in behind him and they began to try to lead these believers in the church in Ephesus astray. And one of the keys of their teaching, one of the central points of their teaching as we see it here in these pastoral epistles is that they were teaching a wrong view of God's law. It says in verse 7 that they were, this is from last week's passage, verse 7 of chapter 1, they were desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding. They desired to be teachers of the law without understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They saw themselves as experts in the law who were enlightening the people with the proper understanding of the law, but Paul says they didn't understand what they were teaching. They were clueless about the law, and therefore they were leading people astray. They were arrogant, they were self-righteous, and they were dead wrong about what the law's purpose was. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it says they were preoccupied with myths and endless genealogies. And what Paul's referring to there is probably Jewish mythology, Jewish apocryphal teachings. In other words, uh, man-made teachings, not scripture, extra-biblical teachings from Jewish culture that they were adding to what the scriptures tell us about the law, about the Christian life, and therefore using these outside sources, outside of scripture, using them to corrupt what the Bible actually teaches about truth, about the law in particular. That's a tactic of a cult, to take God's word and then take the writings of man, some man's ideas, and put them right alongside of scripture, put them up there with equal authority of scripture, thereby corrupting a right understanding of what God's word teaches. And so one result that we saw that came out of their false teaching, we're going to look at it in a few weeks in chapter 4. Let me take you over there, chapter 4, for just a second. There, in the beginning of chapter 4, he describes these false teachers, and listen to what he says about them, starting in verse 3. These false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created by God is good. In other words, they were adding rules, and they were legalists, they were those that were adding to God's law, but with the purpose of corrupting what the Bible teaches about the gospel. They were teaching asceticism as essential to being acceptable to God. Now that's what we would oppose as well. We would oppose that kind of legalism creeping into the church, the salvation by works. But in our zeal to oppose legalism and work salvation in order to protect salvation by grace alone, we must be careful to maintain our love for the law of God. And so that's what I want you to be contemplating as we work our way through this passage. Do I love God's law? How do I do that? How do I make sure that my attitude towards God's law is correct, that I love God's law? 
As an example of, of this struggle, I, I often think about this little thing that I carry around all the time. I love my iPhone. I do. I love it. I love the, the convenience it brings into my life. I love the organization it brings into my life. I love the, the capabilities it adds to my life. It's an incredible little thing. I marvel at it, but I hate it also. I hate it. Why do I hate it? It's inherently a good thing. There's nothing sinful about it. But I hate it because I tend to abuse it. I hate it because it tends to dominate my life. I hate it because it distracts me from the most important things in life. And so there it gives you an example of what Paul's talking about. The law is good if it's used lawfully. It's a really good thing if you look at it in a proper perspective and use it as it was intended. So the key to using the law lawfully is to understand what God, how God intends for it to be used, for it to affect us. And so the first thing you've got to understand about the law of God is that it is God's nature. It is a reflection of who God is. The law is inherently good because God is good. Think about God's will. God's will is perfect, is it not? Well, how do we know what God's will is? This is God's will. The law of God reflects God's will. Therefore, if God's will is perfect, God's law is perfect. And God's will is rooted in God's character. And so God's character is perfect. God's will is perfect. Therefore, God's law is perfect, as the psalmist says. So to love God, you need to love his law. And to love his law is to love God. The law is the answer to the age-old questions of what is good and what is evil. Because we go to the very character of God to determine what is good and what is evil. We've lived in a society for so long that has rejected God's law as the definition of what is good and what is evil, and we've borne the fruit of it. What we have found is that when we make the will of the individual the determination of what is good and evil, we get chaos anarchy. And when we make the will of the majority the definition of what is good and evil, what do we get? We get oppression by the majority. That is why we must go to God's law, which reflects God's character, to find out what is good and evil, and that's what God's law is. God is holy, God is just, God is righteous, and so these are also characteristics of his law and his law defines those traits for humans. And so if the law is inherently good, then it has to have a good purpose in God's plan for all things. And so we must understand God's purpose for the law. Back in the 1500s, the Protestant reformers, they were called Protestants because they were protesting what was going on in the larger church, what they, we would call the Catholic Church, how the Catholic Church had come to abuse God's law, to use God's law unlawfully. And what were they doing? Same thing that these false teachers in Timothy's day were doing. They were taking the gospel of grace and adding salvation by the law into it, that you are saved by both grace and works according to the law. And that's what the reformers were standing against. And in the reforming of the church, 
They called it back to the pure gospel that we are justified by grace through faith alone, apart from the works of the law. But that begged the question then for the reformers, well then why do we have the law? If we're saved by grace alone through faith, then why do we even need the law? What purpose does the law have? And so they came up with three answers to that question, the three answers we still use today to define the purpose of God's law. That it's for a restraint upon our sins, it's for exposure of our sins, and it's for education in righteousness. Let me look briefly at those three. First of all, the law is a restraint upon our sin. The law, Paul says, is for sinners. Look at verse 9. The law is not laid down for the just or the righteous, the good, those who are fully good, but for the lawless and disobedient. He's just stating something that's as obvious as the nose on your face. Fully, completely good people don't need laws. That's an obvious truth. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, we wouldn't need laws in this world because everybody would naturally do what is according to the will of God and therefore consistent with the law. Imagine it for a moment. A world without congressmen making laws. A world without lawyers studying laws. A world without judges interpreting and applying the laws. A world without policemen enforcing the laws. It would be paradise. But that's not our world. And no one is good. No one is righteous. No one fits that description. And Jesus said when he came, he said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he, he, by saying that, he wasn't saying, okay, all you righteous people, go, go your way. You don't need me. He's saying, there isn't a righteous person. I came for sinners, and you're all sinners. Righteous people don't need a savior. Because we're all sinners, the law is given as a, declare, a declaration of God's will as an external restraint upon our sin. I'd hate to think of a world without God's law having been expressed to it in writing the way that we have it. And not only that, not only does he give his written law as a testimony to his will, but he also gives us the law, law of God written on the heart that Paul talks about in the book of Romans, our conscience. Could you imagine a world without a conscience, without people having consciences to restrain their wickedness? And the whole purpose of the law as a written word, as an external witness against our sin and our bad behavior and our internal witness of our conscience, this, this thing that all people have that God in his common grace instills within us to restrain. Think what the world would be like without those two things, without God's written law and without the law written on the heart. The world would, would be total chaos. Our sin would be unrestrained. And we would truly become as evil as we're capable of. And so the law restrains wickedness. But secondly, the reformers taught us, and this is the one we're going to focus on here. This is Paul's focus, I think, in this passage. The law exposes sin. The law exposes our sin. The law is the light of God's character. It's God's perspective on the way we think, the way we feel, our attitudes, our words, and our actions. And it exposes our sin. It strips us of any hope 
that we could ever be good enough to be pleasing unto God. Paul gives us a pretty ugly picture in verses 9 and 10 where he basically works his way through the Ten Commandments. You probably didn't notice that when you first read it. But he actually uses the Ten Commandments as an outline and follows the Ten Commandments in order to show us a picture of humanity under the gaze of God's law. He starts by, there's four phrases, four, four words in the original Greek that all reflect sins that are committed directly against the person of God. The words ungodly and sinners and unholy and profane. Those four words, interestingly, in the original language, apply to sins that we commit directly against God himself. And therefore, what Paul's alluding to there are the first four commandments. That we shall have no other gods before God. That we shall not make any images. That we shall not take his name in vain. That we shall not profane his holy day. These are... The, the sins, the first four commandments, violations of those commandments are what's being summarized in those four terms. Then he moves to commandment number five, those who strike their fathers and mothers. The fifth commandment, you shall honor your parents. Interestingly, he doesn't say just dishonoring parents, but actually acting out in violence against your parents. So again, he's showing, it's not just that we dishonor our parents, but the sins, he's giving an extreme version of these sins of actually violently attacking your parents in rebellion. And then he moves on to, to commandment number six, murderers. You shall not murder. Commandment number seven, he lists the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. In other words, the violation of the commandment that says that we are to only enter into sexual relations with our husband, our wife, that person with him, whom we are in a lifelong covenant of marriage, a man and a woman for lifetime. Only in that context are we to have sexual relations. And so he lists sins outside of those boundaries, violations of the seventh commandment. Then he moves on to the eighth commandment, enslavers. The eighth commandment says you shall not steal. But the word literally here is man-stealers. In other words, people who kidnapped human beings in order to sell them into slavery. Sometimes people wonder if Paul was for or against slavery because he didn't advocate the immediate overthrow of the slavery system. He clearly taught the principles against slavery. And here he talks about the sin as an extreme example of stealing. That's what slavery is. Because you're not just stealing somebody's possessions, you're stealing their person. And you're bounding them into slavery. And then he moves on to commandment number nine, liars and perjurers. Not just people who lie, but he adds people who lie under oath in order to harm other people. Paul gives us a very ugly picture of humanity. He exposes what we consider to be normal life in this fallen world as he brings the light of God's law upon it and shows us how ugly it is. And then the third use of the law, the purpose of the law, according to the reformers, was that it educates us in righteousness. In other words, once we have been saved by grace, we discover a new use for the law. It didn't save us, but then it becomes our guide for life. It becomes our lifelong instruction in the very nature of the God that we serve so that we might become like him by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the third use of the law. We'll get back to that one in a minute. But I want to go back to the second use of the law. 
how it exposes our sin and how necessary that is for the gospel because that's Paul's point in this passage. The law exposes our sins so that we can be driven to Jesus Christ for grace. And without the law's work exposing our sin and bringing us under conviction, we will never seek Christ and never find grace. We need to understand how the law leads to the gospel. Go back to verses 8 through 11 again. Look at that. If you just take the middle out and look at the beginning in verse 8 and look at the end, it's one long sentence. And you look at the end of the sentence in verse 11, let me cut the middle out and give you the, the whole thought from be, the beginning and the end, where he says, we know that the law is good. And then you skip to the end in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel. That's extremely important to understanding Paul's point here. The law is good as long as you're harmonizing it with the gospel. As long as it is working in conjunction with the gospel, in cooperation with the gospel, the law is good. It prepares us for grace. As we said a few moments ago, the law shows us the holiness of God. If you look at the law, you see God's holy character. You're confronted with your sin and how unimaginably holy and apart from sin our God is. You remember when the prophet Isaiah had a vision of that, a literal visible vision of how holy God is, how holy, holy, holy God is? Do you remember what his response was? Woe is me, I'm undone. That's what happens when sinners encounter the holiness of God. And we encounter the holiness of God in his law. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul puts a positive spin on it. He says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. We are kept bound under the law to prepare us for the coming of Christ and the revelation of what the grace of God would look like in Christ. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And then, if you understand the argument up to this point, you understand why Paul shifts into his own personal testimony at this point. From verses 12 to 17, Paul turns the spotlight of God's law upon his own life. And he lifts himself up as a testimony of the work of the law in leading somebody to grace. He begins in verse 12, interestingly, by marveling at the fact that Christ had called him and, and enabled him, strengthened him, and then commissioned him to be an apostle. If you read Paul's writings in the New Testament, he's continually in awe that Christ had called him, of all people, to be his spokesman, to be his apostle, to be one who would transmit the very word of God to God's people. He was just overawed by that. I have that feeling every time I walk into the pulpit on a Sunday morning. What a blessing, what a privilege to be one who brings the word of God to God's people, to be used in that greatest of all works where God speaks to his people. Paul was overawed that he not only was called as a preacher of the gospel, but an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reason he's in such awe of that privilege is he then begins to reflect on what he was. We should all do that. If you don't do that on a regular basis, you better make it a spiritual discipline. Reflect upon who you are by God's grace and who you were before God's grace came into your life. And that's what Paul does here. He says 
in verse 13, though I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Unless we miss the point in verse 15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now you have to think about this a second because we as Christians, we're always putting Paul up on a pedestal. And we're saying, what a great man of God Paul was. What a saint. And so you hear him say, I was the foremost of sinners. In in the older translations, I was the chief of sinners. I was the greatest sinner. I was the foremost of sinners. You're like, come on, Paul. Talk about hyperbole. Talk about over the top. Come on, Paul. What do you mean you're the worst of sinners? He's not using hyperbole. He means it very, very literally. In order to understand why he calls himself the chief of sinners, you need to understand how God looks at our sin. That's why you have to spend much time studying God's law so that you see your sin the way God sees it. And we tend to think, what are the worst sins that mankind can commit? Murder, maybe rape and murder, maybe genocide. I mean, these are really wicked, awful, terrible sins, absolutely. But Paul saw his sin as worse. He did. He, he, you know, if you, let me ask you the question, which is worse, to murder someone, in other words, take away their physical life, or to be a false teacher or a false prophet who leads people astray from Christ and leads them on the path to hell? Jesus said about those people, better a millstone be tied around their neck and cast into the deepest part of the sea. I've said all along that to be a false teacher is to be destined, an unrepentant false teacher is destined for the deepest pits of hell. That's the sin that God hates most. And Paul was very much that. Paul understood that before Christ confronted him, before Christ knocked him off his horse and invaded his life, he was an antichrist. He was a false teacher. He was forcibly seeking to lead people away from Christ and towards hell. In the book of Acts, it says that Paul oversaw the murder of Stephen. It says that he ravaged the church. That's a direct quote from the book of Acts. He ravaged the church of Jesus Christ. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Later, it says he breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Later, he says that he beat Christians. And what was the purpose of beating them? He says, this is a quote from Paul, I did it to cause them to make them to blaspheme. Paul says, I'm the foremost, I was the foremost of sinners. God hated my sins more than he hated any other. You look at that list of extreme sins back in verses 9 through 11, and you understand why Paul, he was a blasphemer, who tried to make others blaspheme. He was a murderer. He was an opponent of the church of Jesus Christ. He was an antichrist. He was the foremost of sinners. And he goes on to say in verse 13, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Don't misunderstand what he's saying there. It's easy to, to read that in a superficial way and think, oh, he's downplaying his sin. Oh, I just didn't understand. I just didn't get it. God, you know, it's not, my sins weren't really that bad. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the only thing that could have made his horrendous sins worse 
It's if he actually did understand who Jesus Christ was and did them anyway. That's the only thing that could have made his sins worse. You see, Paul is teaching the same thing about God's law here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as he did in Romans chapter 7. The book of Romans is Paul's long teaching on what the gospel is. And Romans chapter 7 is so important to understanding that whole treatise on what the gospel is because after explaining the gospel of salvation by faith, through faith, by grace alone, after explaining that in great detail, he comes to chapter 7 and he turns the light of God's law upon his sin. And he talks about that time in his life when he came under conviction of sin. You know, Paul was an expert. He was a Pharisee, but he wasn't just a Pharisee. He was one of the great teachers of the law in Israel. He knew the law inside and out. And when the Holy Spirit got a hold of him and he came under conviction and suddenly understood what the law was really saying about what sin was and what his sin was, he was crushed by it. All that knowledge he had about the law became a bigger and bigger weight for him. Because the law was condemning him. And so let me read to you just a portion of that Romans 7. First of all, verse, beginning in verse 7 of, of Romans 7. He says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Go down to verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And the law exposed my sin and showed me how desperately wicked I was and beyond hope. He ends chapter 7 by saying, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? That's how Romans 7 ends. That's what the conviction of the law does upon a, a sinner. It causes you to see yourself as wretched. You don't like that word, do you? You don't think of yourself as wretched. It's not in your profile. You should put it in your Facebook profile. I am wretched. You know, because it, it's so essential to your understanding of your salvation. I, I came across some alterations, some updates of some of our classic hymns recently. Actual examples of hymns that are being sung in modern churches. Hymns that are rewritten to accommodate the pressure of the culture for us to be more focused on building up people's self-esteem. And so the great hymn, Amazing Grace, that line where it says, Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me, in the modern version it now says, Amazing Grace that saved and strengthened me. That great hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, it has that great line in it, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, did he die for such a worm as I? It now says, for such sinners as I? Because we don't want to think of ourselves as a worm. That's terrible for our self-esteem. I mean, do you ever kind of cough on that when you sing that hymn? Like, such a worm as I am. Am I really a worm in God's sight in my sin? Well, let me say this. If you compare yourself to a worm in terms of your sin, you're insulting worms. You're insulting worms. And I'm serious. Because worms don't blaspheme. Worms don't lie. Worms don't steal. So you're really underestimating yourself when you say, I'm like a worm in the sight of this holy God in my sin. But see, you've got to get to that place 
in order to see grace, to acknowledge your need of grace. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's grace is greater than our sin. Roman, here in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. I want you to understand when Paul wrote these words, I am convinced he was in tears. I bet he was even on his knees. Don't read this in a dispassionate, intellectual way. He said, the grace of God. I saw who I was in the sight of God. I was worse than a worm. I was a wretch. But the grace of God abounded more than my sin, and the grace of God overflowed over me. And then he gives the gospel in that beautiful sentence. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. I love it when, the God, when scripture puts it in a phrase that we can carry with us and share with other people. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. That's the good news. There's so much deep gospel theology tied up in that, that he came into the world. It, it points to his pre-existence. This was God the Son, the eternal Son of God, who existed long before he was born as a human being in Bethlehem. He was the eternal, perfect Son of God who came into this world in order to save sinners. It points to his incarnation. It points to his humiliation. It points to his suffering on the cross. It points to the doctrine of the atonement, that his blood was shed as he hung there on the cross, paying the penalty for all of our violations of God's law. He paid the penalty so you don't have to. And then, having paid for our sin in full, he gives us the gift of his perfect righteousness. You see, the law needs to help us understand how awful our sin is so that we come to Christ to give, be given the gift of his righteousness. And that's what you need to understand about the gospel. That's the law and gospel working together perfectly, is that the gospel doesn't abolish the law. The gospel doesn't end the law. The gospel doesn't lower the standards of the law. The gospel, the, the message about what Christ did for us on the cross and in his resurrection, it enables us to fulfill the terms of the law. Not with our own righteousness, but with his righteousness. The law and gospel working together. That's why Paul, after talking about his sinfulness and his wretchedness in Romans chapter 7, he begins chapter 8 with these glorious words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. We are seen by this holy God as law keepers because we're robed in the righteousness of Christ. That brings us to the third use of the law we mentioned a moment ago. Once you've been saved by grace, once you have had Christ die for your sins and have had his righteousness applied to your record so that you stand before God as a fully obedient child in his sight, 
by, in a legal sense, then the Holy Spirit begins to teach you and step by step transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And the law is his textbook. The law is how we learn what Christ-likeness looks like. And when we grow in our Christ-likeness, there's this wonderful thing happens where we begin to realize that the law is not something that's imposed upon us to make our life miserable. It's actually the law of freedom. It's the boundaries between what is good and fullness of life and peace. It's the boundaries between that and what is dangerous and dark and destructive. And we begin to truly love God's law because not only is it a picture of Christ, it's the means by which the Holy Spirit is conforming us into the image of Christ. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 1, the first three verses, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We love the law of God for what it does for us when it's used lawfully in accordance with the Father's intent. That's why Paul ends this passage, as you notice in verse 17, with doxology. I told you that he wrote these words in tears and on his knees, but he ends up, I think, standing up and lifting his hands in praise and worship and saying these words, to the King of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's filled with thankfulness and adoration and praise. You know, that's why our services begin. If people aren't familiar, people come from other church backgrounds and they come into our service and often we'll hear the comment that, why do you start with a reading of the law and a time of confession of sin? Why do you begin the service that way? I mean, aren't, isn't the purpose of the beginning of the service to get people all revved up and feeling happy and excited so they'll praise God? No, no, that's not how worship happens. Worship happens when you see the holiness of God, when you behold his glory, whether it's in his law or in his creation or in the gospel, when you see the holiness and glory of God and then you look back upon your own sin and you confess those sins and then you re you're driven to the, to the throne of Christ to receive grace, then you're ready to worship. Then you're ready to worship. This is how we learn to love the law of God. See it, first of all, as a picture of the very character of your Redeemer. Secondly, see it as a very strict but loving disciplinarian, a guardian, a schoolmaster that has led you to find grace in Christ. And then thirdly, see it as a guide to the freedom that comes from being conformed to the image of Christ. That's how you love God's law. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for not only Paul's teaching, but also his example. If your grace is sufficient to cover the sin and to transform a sinner like Paul, then it is certainly sufficient to forgive and to transform us. Lord, help us to keep our focus upon your law, seeing it through the lens of the gospel, that we might be more like Christ, for that is truly abundant life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.